My guest today is Dan Balkowski, the product pricing guru. He is going to expand your mind on how to think about pricing, so much so, in fact, that I have to air the interview in two parts, so this episode and next week's both. I was introduced to Dan by J.J. Rory, product management leader and trainer, author of The Five Immutable Truths of Great Product Managers, and of course, my guest on episode 98 of this show. Now, in this interview, Dan goes over the three C's of pricing, how pricing is related to value, but not always as straightforwardly as you might think, the importance of competitors and reference pricing, and many other topics. Hi, you're listening to episode 134 of the Secrets of Product Management podcast. I'm your host, Nels Davis, and I'm so happy you're here listening. I think you'll get a kick out of Dan's insights and stories. As always, you can find links related to the stuff we talk about, including a few books and Dan's contact information, at secretsofpm.com slash 134. You might hear in the recording that my voice is a little bit ratty. It's much better now, but it was pretty bad when I recorded this just over a week ago. So bear with me, but I think it sounds okay, really, for the recording. Now to get started, I asked Dan a question that had just come to me but that perhaps you'll resonate with. Dan, welcome to the show. It's fantastic having you here. I've got this one question that just came to me. Is there something fundamental that people often get wrong about pricing that you want to clarify right from the beginning? Yeah, when it comes to especially SaaS pricing, most executives think that what you charge will determine your success. In fact, who and how you charge will determine your success. So there's a great pricing thought leader in the space called Stephen Forth. And he has this great term says, I would spend most of my time on what the price tag goes on and little time on what number goes on the price tag. <laughs> so what does that really mean? Does that mean make sure you have the right product that people want? No. So when we think about pricing or I talk about pricing, I actually talk about pricing and packaging and when we talk about packaging, we're not talking about consumer goods, you know, uh, the outside colorful uh, mm -hmm. boxes that things come in. Although actually in a CPG world, in a consumer packaged goods world, you buy a, a bottle, uh, a two liter of Coca-Cola or you buy a can of Coca-Cola or a 12 pack or a case, right? The price is price per case, price per mm -hmm. bottle, price mm -hmm. per, per can. We have a similar thing in the software world, but it gets much more complex. And so we don't often talk about packaging in such complex terms in other areas because it, it tends to be much simpler. It's just a physical good. It, it is what it is. You buy one hamburger or one car. That is the packaging. But in software, it becomes infinitely malleable. It's a pro and a con of software. It's very hard in the world of physical goods to create a three-arm sweater. It's not hard at all. And we see it all the time in the software world to create a three-arm sweater. And so then it's like, are you priced by the number of arms or by the material that it's made of? So when we think about packaging, it's the fundamental ways that we've bundled your software and then are bringing it to market. So there's usually four elements of that. There's a price metric. So that's the unit of value you charge customers for. That could be by seats, by API transactions, by mm -hmm. gigabytes of data stored or transferred. There's the price model. This is how uh, payments flow through the system. So is it, is it perpetual transaction? Is it a subscription? Is it a utility billing model, like your electric bill, where you use as much as you want and you get a bill at the end of the month? Is it dynamic pricing like Google or Facebook has for their ad inventory? There's the offer bundles or configurations. So these are how do we group different sets of features together into coherent offers that we 
present to customers. So mm-hmm. we usually think of these in terms of like good, better, best offers in terms of in SaaS. And then there's these ideas of price fences or price structures, which is how do we charge two different customers different prices for essentially the same product? So it, we ha- run into this all the time in our non-software world, right? If I get on a bus, I'm going to pay one fee, a senior citizen or student will pay another fee, right? That would be an identity-based uh, price fence. Uh, there could be a change in, based in time. So in enterprise software world, if I call up sales on the first day of the month, I'm going to get a very different discount offer than if I if I call them up on the last day of the quarter. Right. Uh, so there would be a, a time-based uh, fence. And there's also volume-based fences. So you know how I, how much I buy uh, changes. You know the first seat of a piece of software I buy could be a different unit price than the thousand seat I buy, and mm-hmm. so it would be a volume-based sense. I'm, if I'm getting the same software, I'm buying just another seat, but it's at a different uh, level. So all of those elements are number one much more important to supporting your value story. How the value that you deliver to customers is connected to the price that they are paying mm-hmm. right? because you don't want to have your sales team, your mark, go to market teams explaining how wonderful your product is. And then when it gets to the pricing conversation, they got to take a, a total 90 degree turn and be like, well, but then we price this other way that has nothing to do with this, this magical story mm-hmm. I just outlined from how this product was going to transform your, your product. Uh, so those things tend to be much more important supporting that story. They're harder to change. They help you capture differences in what the different customer segments or groups that you want to uh, attract, uh, allowing you to, for example, match the the price to the to the budget or the the account size or the value you're delivering a particular customer. And you know they're much harder to change at the end of the day than a price level, especially in enterprise. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's it's great. You mentioned something that I I want to drill down on a little bit, which is this idea of the value story, because I I'm I have lots of episodes about storytelling. And so your use of the word story pricked my ears up. Tell me about the value story and how that ties into this. So at a high level, there's really a foundational relationship between price and value. I use I use a couple of different frameworks to think about that. So two frameworks I didn't invent, but I stand on the shoulders of giants. So one is called the value cascade. It comes from a seminal book on pricing called the strategy tax of pricing by a gentleman named Tom Nagel, who wrote an excellent book that outlines how to do pricing in, in pretty much every context, not just software, as well as a jobs to be done from likes of Clayton Christensen, Tony Elwick, Bob Mesta, et cetera. We think about value in terms of the value cascade in a couple of different ways. Uh, At the beginning, it's this idea of use value. So this is all of the benefits that a customer might accrue or, or, or get from using your product. And from a jobs to be done perspective, how do we think about those benefits? Well, there's three kind of core different value drivers. There's economic outcomes. So increased revenue, decreased costs, increased optionality, decreased risk. There's emotional outcomes. So I'm going to feel better some way. I've reduced anxiety, reduced stress, uh, higher status, uh, access to expertise, better confidence, et cetera. Uh, And then social uh, value. So we're not just only out for ourselves as human beings. So especially if you're in a government or a nonprofit, right? The fight for climate initiatives, equal rights, uh, access to education, right? How, what mm-hmm. is the benefit that we're creating for broader humanity, right? Those are different kinds of value. And so, so those are all the ways that we could tell value. So coming back to your question, the value story is where are we adding value to our, our users' lives? And then 
what we want to do is support that through uh, multiple different ways to get to the other layers of the value cascade. I'll I'll stop there because I think I answered your your initial question, <laughs> but we can we can sort of dig in on that uh, in a bit. So fundamentally, it's we have to be able to articulate, or we should, as part of this, articulate the value in these different dimensions, or in some way that presumably helps the prospects say, oh yeah, that value is the thing I want. And then how do we get to pricing Correct. from there? Yeah. As we go along this idea of the value cascade, right? We we start with sort of use value. What is the what is the outcome we're helping customers achieve along those dimensions of, of economic drivers, uh, emotional mm-hmm. or, or social drivers? But use value is not necessarily relevant to the pricing exercise. What is more relevant is what we call exchange value. And exchange value brings in this concept of you're in a market environment. Mm -hmm. Humans don't have a a fundamental value or price meter inside their heads. Price and value are only in relative to other alternatives. So you know, in the jobs to be done sense, we think about direct and indirect competitors. There's there's a job to be done. I often use the example of uh, Facebook uh, competes with cigarettes. You're working on something difficult. You've got an itch to not work on that. You want to get away. You either open up another Chrome tab and go to Facebook and serve Facebook for five minutes, or you go out and smoke a cigarette. They're both scratching the same fundamental itch, right? Although maybe Facebook or uh, RJ Reynolds wouldn't necessarily like those comparisons, but they, they fundamentally are satisfied in the same customer job to be done. Companies, you know, often will be competing against email or spreadsheets. Right, right. Not every sure. workflow SaaS product is not, uh, you know, not just competing against other SaaS tools down the street uh, in Silicon Valley, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. So the idea of exchange value is we want to understand what is sort of our next best competitive alternative, and that's setting reference price. So one way to illustrate this, uh, as we go from use value to exchange value, is if you think about Mr. Howell and Gilligan's Island. So so I, we're, we're probably dating ourselves with yeah, this, yeah, this yeah. example, but for those of you younger who never got the TBS reruns of, of, of Gilligan's Island, a bunch of people are trapped I, on an island. I saw the original show. There you go. <laughs> uh, Mr. Howell is one of these people trapped on the island. He's a, he's a millionaire, uh, probably a billionaire in today's dollars with inflation. And you know, a ship comes to the island to rescue him. Now that ship captain can charge Mr. Howell whatever money he wants because all of Mr. Howell's money is useless on Gilligan's Island. So we should be willing to pay up to, you know, poverty level to get off that island. Now, if we think about exchange value, a second ship arrives. The value of getting off the island hasn't fundamentally changed, but now neither ship captain A or B can charge Mr. Howell his entire net worth because now there's going to be a negotiation. The same overall use value has brought down, yep. okay, now there's going to be a reference price and then who's got the better amenities? Do I get a cabin <laughs> in one versus the other? Right Now we start having that level of comparison. Definitely. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. So we have to think about exchange value. The the use value is sort of what we talk about from the in the value story. The exchange value is something we have to think about for the pricing. Yeah. So, so when I think about the value story, right? So it's, it's these components of the value drivers, right? So Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, our marketing landing pages are going to talk about how we save our customers time. We save them money. We allow them to be more efficient. They could reduce spend on other tools and consolidate with ours, right? Or they'll they'll save the world. That's a social value piece, for example. Exactly. Exactly. Or get promoted. Uh, That's the emotional outcome. 
exactly. Uh, or or not get fired. Uh, no one ever got fired for buying IBM. Exactly. Is was it was actually a marketing campaign and a brilliant one on behalf of the <laughs> IBM marketers who realized that there's a strong emotional component of yes, I'm putting my reputation on the line. Exactly. And you could have the better product. But I really just prefer to rather keep my job. So it doesn't matter that you have better differentiation and speeds and feeds. I want to make sure that I stay employed. Those are the ideas of the value story for the market that we serve. You, these value drivers could get very extensive. If you go do your research properly, you might have you know, 10, 20 different ways you could improve a customer's life. But that's way too complicated for your for your go-to-market teams to to tell for your sales team to tell. So we really have to understand what are the kind of core three to five mm -hmm. of those value drivers mm -hmm. that we're really going to focus on and, and tell that story. And then we want our packaging to help support whatever that is, right? So the ultimate would be, for example, like Stripe. I think Stripe has one of the best uh, business models uh, because they take a percentage of revenue transactions. So they are perfectly aligned where like, as you grow, like mm -hmm. you are doing more business. So we charge along with you, right? So it's it's aligned of the product with the with how the, the outcome of the customer is being achieved. That's right. That's right. Yeah. You mentioned this concept called the three C's of pricing, and maybe you can talk about how that ties into what you just talked about. And then we can get into value-based pricing and also how that ties in, because I think those are all three. These are sort of all really related concepts, right? They're highly related. The three C's of pricing is really what we're talking about when we're thinking about pricing orientations. Mm -hmm. So pricing orientation at a fundamental level is how, how is pricing done around here? What are the things that we look at for inputs that really help us understand how we're going to put our pricing together? And so I think of the three C's of pricing as a ladder. It's not like you get to sort of pick and choose. Companies tend to grow along this defined path. And what the what the three C's are is cost-based pricing, competition-based pricing, customer value-based pricing, often just called value-based pricing. But if we did that, then we wouldn't have our three C's and marketers. <laughs> we love our four P's and our five C's. And you know, so we need to have that, that handy mnemonic. So cost-based, competition-based, customer value-based. When we think about that progression, ultimately a business has to, earn a profit in the long term. I know maybe a lot of startups have forgotten that in this mm -hmm. age of, of never-ending venture capital funding and being private forever. But eventually you do have to turn a profit. Otherwise you'll go out of business and you won't be able to deliver the value that your customers so desperately want you to deliver. So we start with cost-based pricing, which is I have a certain level of costs and the cogs and the cost of goods sold that I'm, I'm bringing to mm -hmm. market. Mm -hmm. And I need to make sure that I can keep the lights on. So my AWS bill is X. That's my all my infrastructure cost. So I'm going to charge 10x, and then that that other 9x in between is going to be paying for uh, GNA and sales and R and D, etc. So I can keep the lights on. Right um, now, it's it's simple. It's relatively clear cut. Data is in the the building, so it's usually easy to find compared to other ways. You know, help it helps set a price floor. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it's it's doesn't make long-term sense because your customers really don't care about your costs. I don't mm -hmm. know. I don't, I've never asked a software vendor like how much they pay their engineers or how much their sales commissions are. It's like, it, it's totally irrelevant to me. Yeah. Not and my problem. Exactly. 100%. <laughs> and so, you know, while it also appears very quantitative and CFOs really love cost-based pricing because they can make a spreadsheet and like they just, right. but, but actually it's qualitative. Like the output is a quantity, but your, your primary input 
this markup of like, we have to have 80% margins is absolutely qualitative. Like there's no, it's, it's, it's based upon the dreams of the CFO and the CEO of what that wasn't written on the mountain and stone tablets somewhere. 80%, hundred percent, hundred percent. So, <laughs> so again, right. There's nothing, again, there's nothing inherently wrong. And I'm not going to say that, you know, as we go along this journey, like, oh, you have to do value-based pricing. Actually, I will actively push people away from value-based pricing because for, for other reasons I'll mention later, but um, you know, you, you have to start somewhere and it's totally fine to start cost-based, right? Because you have to be able to make sure you have a, a contribution margin. You're able to you're mm-hmm. able to pay everyone. You're able to continue to stay in business. As folks grow through that, they eventually get to competition-based pricing. So again, pretty simple to understand and execute. We look out at the market, right? The idea being is that our customers live in a market reality. Like we are not the only shop in town. I go to the grocery store, I see Coke and I see Pepsi right next to it. It's not that Coke gets to just define, and you know, it's not a monopoly, right? Unless you're lucky uh, in some very mm-hmm. rare cases, mm-hmm. uh, the government probably won't let you uh, stick around very long. There will be other competition. So we have to take that into account because our that's the re- reality our buyers live in. Right. And Therefore, you know, it can help us understand what other people are charging. I see this used at different levels of sophistication. I think the sort of the first level of sophistication is we're selling a CRM solution. And so who's the market leader? Well, Salesforce is the market leader. So everyone's like, well, Salesforce charges X. So we have to charge less than X. Because because mm-hmm. everyone's going to be looking at the market leader, and so we have to be less than that, right? And right. then again, it's a qualitative judgment of of somewhere we're less than that. Um, and so look, it's it's fundamentally better than cost based pricing. And you can you imagine, right? As you're as you're going through this, you still need to know your costs because while less than X sort of sets a ceiling in that <laughs> case, you still need to know what your costs are. Yeah. Um, so the the problem here though is that this fundamentally outsources the work of your pricing department to your competition. I don't know Mm -hmm. any CEO that would happily give their demand gen strategy to their competitors or their product development roadmap to their competitors. But for some reason, people feel perfectly happy. Like, Oh yeah, sure. Competition, like just own our pricing. Like that would be, that would be great. Um, And look, it assumes your competitors have done their homework. I know you talk to a lot of product managers, product leaders, we haven't talked about my history at all, but I spent the uh, past 15 years in the product management, product strategy world. And I learned very early on to be very wary of competitors releasing new features as a product leader, because that implies an assumption of they're attacking the same customer that they've even done their homework. Why'd you build this feature? Well, because the CEO talked to one customer and said, we had to build it. And you know, your competition is a different, they, yeah. some product leader over there is fighting the same exact battle of like, oh, we had to build this thing. And so you look at that and be like, oh, well, they must know what they're doing. They must have some insight on the market. It's like, no, they're making the same mistakes you are. So, so don't follow them blindly on your pricing or in your product roadmap. Right. Um, and then, you know, as we, as we think about this progression, right, then we get to value-based pricing. So now we're really focused on making the customer, the central input. What is the value that they're going to derive? If we think about, you know, a company's revenue on a long-term scale is really a derivation of the value we provide to the market. There's mm-hmm. machinations and Enron schemes you can pull in the interim to fake, but eventually that catches up with you. So I'm not saying that there's not other ways to juice your revenue. And I'm sure there's a bunch of people on Wall Street who will tell you there's all sorts of fancy shenanigans we could play with with financial models to, to make it otherwise. But I fundamentally believe long-term, the, the revenues a company achieves and the profit the company achieves are related to the value they deliver to the market. And so 
value-based pricing really focuses you primarily on that. Again, you don't get to lose sight of your competitions or costs as we go along this journey. Like Mr. Howell with his, his <laughs> boat example, or you know, understanding what my AWS infrastructure bill, all the uh, salaries I got to pay to everyone in my company. Like I still need to understand that, that you know, it puts me in control of my pricing inside the company, but it also is very difficult. Uh, it requires an entire internal organizational reorientation of a pricing philosophy. It's a it's a go to market model. It requires you know, value-based selling, messaging, value-based customer success. Like you can't just have a value-based pricing team go into a closet somewhere and then, you know, just, like, hey, we update all of our pricing lists because this, what's going to happen if you do that is that as soon as a salesperson's on the front line talking to a customer, they get some pushback, they're going to fold and just be like, well, I, I don't know how to justify right, what right, right, you've right. done. So, you know, <clears throat> it, it generally it does require a very mature uh, understanding of your market and customer segments via research, which can be more costly in terms of time and money. And and then there's also this aspect of managerial judgment, which can make some you know executives nervous because it's not as easy to just put a thing on like the the CFO with this his spreadsheet say, well, this is the price, right? Because my mm -hmm. spreadsheet says it. It could be much more fuzzy, and so some executives don't like to stand in the line of fire having to justify that uh, to the board or, or whoever else. Yeah. So I'll ask you a question a little later that actually kind of gets to a, a situation that I faced. In retrospect, I faced it. I didn't realize I faced it at the time, but I I should have asked this question of myself or my organization. We'll get to that in a in a bit. I think that the next question then is to is to ask, well, what is value and are there different ways to think about it and how do we figure out the value? But first, you started to touch on it. How did you become the pricing expert, Dan? A little bit of uh, market need, a little bit of luck. So I spent most of my career on what we might call the value creation side. So I've been in technology my entire career, started engineer and engineering management, uh, but I found myself fascinated by how the products that we built created value for customers and turned into dollars for the business. And this interest led me to pursue my MBA. I didn't realize it then, but I was quite lucky with my MBA. Uh, the program I went to is widely recognized for excellence in marketing, but I didn't find out till quite recently that very few business schools at all have courses in pricing. So received my theoretical grounding in pricing there. And it was actually during that internship, uh, during my MBA, I was working for a very successful Silicon Valley startup. And the sort of question on the CEO's desk. It was a consumer company, but they went to market through uh, four large uh, providers. And one of those providers was trying to be sort of the low cost vendor in their space. Mm -hmm. And so dictated to all their partners that they had to have a freemium version of the app that we sold through. Right. Uh, and so the, the question on the CEO's desk was, we have to do this for the one partner. Do we we create freemium versions for all of our partners? And so, you know, among many projects I worked for them this that summer, I I dove deep into the freemium world, uh, discovered it's actually a pretty terrible idea. A TLDR, I don't recommend it. Uh, <laughs> we can go down that rabbit hole if you want, but you know it only works in very rare circumstances. Um, and you know after after business school, I you know went into the world of, of product management, product strategy. I spent you know, much more time on the value creation side, uh, uh, looking at it through a product management lens. And we acquired a lot of products, other products at that company. I saw a lot of uh, early company mistakes. Uh, I was responsible. Uh, it, product marketing technically owned pricing in that company, but 
because of my background, like I, a lot of the product marketers would come to me and be like, I don't know how to do this. Can, <laughs> can you help? And so I, given my background, I, I did try to help. I also made a bunch of mistakes. So I'm not saying that even then I was, I was, I was nearly, uh, <laughs> you know, handed down in stone tablets myself. I was definitely a work in progress. And I realized uh, a lot of the, the pricing theory doesn't work as it applies to software. Like I think that's one misconception that people may have is that, you know, we think about pricing. It's like, well, pricing for hotels and airline seats versus consumer packaged goods uh, versus software versus, you know, valuing, you know, the the price of a stock, right? Those are all pricing exercises, but they, they have very different dynamics. And there's sure. some fundamental economic realities, but then uh, the, the details start to matter quite uh, significantly as you get into those different industries. So got a tremendous experience in seeing all those mistakes. And now I have the privilege of helping founders, CEOs, and their teams build sustainable businesses and helping their products in the hands of as many customers as possible. That's fantastic. That's a great story. I'm sure that in all of that experience, you did do a lot of things where you were moving companies up the ladder of the three C's. So let's talk a little bit more about value-based pricing and sort of what is value in this context. I mean, we talked about the value story as well, so probably related to that, I would guess. Um, but then, you know, sort of how do we work it out? Do people tell us or, you know, how does this work? So understanding value fundamentally comes from a process and that's asking your questions about their business. Right. And the trick is to drive those discussions to a dollar sign. If you can't focus on financial value, any talk about you know, value to the customers is fundamentally just noise. If I could put a billboard up, right, for all product managers, product <laughs> marketers listening, like, talk to your customers. Uh, I think one distinction here that's important because uh, maybe, you know, everyone here is talk to your customers and for whatever reason, nobody does it. But uh, I think one distinction that's important in the pricing world is, I teach a course for, for my business school on product strategy still. Um, but uh, the, I think the distinction of when I talk to the product leaders about product strategy versus talking to pricing people about pricing strategy is in product management, if we think about, uh, there's a couple of different personas within a company, right? There's the end user and the buyer, just as a simplified mm -hmm. version. In product management, product strategy, usually say I usually tell people focus first on the end user because ultimately that will satisfy the goals of the of the financial buyer indirectly. Mm -hmm. With pricing, you do have to get more to the financial buyer, uh, and so that is usually a switch in the process uh, because the end user is not really thinking about uh, kind of the core outcomes that they're trying to drive, that the fundamental ROI of a, of a purchase of of a CRM or of an ERP mm -hmm. or, or whatever piece of software we're talking about. Um, and so, again, I, I use the concept of jobs to be done, right? I think jobs to be done, very helpful in a couple of, of ways. And I, I really like uh, Tony Olwick specifically, his formulation about jobs to be done, of, of focusing on what those outcomes are. It mm -hmm. really helps focus us on the problem space, not in the solution space. It's a distinction maybe your, your listeners are familiar with. So they we'll better be that. because I talk about it all the time. Um, and focuses on, you know, the outcome the customer is trying to achieve and, the, and their context, right? The con context is decisive. Uh, you know, it's not the person, the problems arise in context. And I'll often, mm -hmm. uh, talk about this, but we haven't talked about sort of my overall model of, for, for SaaS pricing, but where I start is really with understanding customer segments at a, at a value or needs-based customer segmentation. And that is usually primarily driven by the customer's job to be done and their context. It could be very 
tempting to do more of a, a firmographic or demographic based segmentation, but mm-hmm. that doesn't dictate why customers buy, why they value. And if we make it, if I'm making the argument, which I am, that value and price are fundamentally connected, I need to be thinking about customer segments in terms of how they differ in terms of the value, right? The, the, the sure. problems arise in the context that they're in. So it's really about driving those deep level discussions to uncover customers' jobs and the outcome they're trying to create, the the situation, motivation that they're in. Right. So you mentioned uh, when we were talking about value earlier, the three categories, economic outcomes, emotional outcomes, and social value outcomes. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm hearing is that the value is really it sounds like most closely connected to the economic outcomes, which isn't surprising. How much do the emotional outcomes and social value outcomes play into that or how much can they? They can for sure. You know, what you want to think about, you know, we, we haven't talked about sort of the third step of the value cascade, which is, which is perceived value. So Mm -hmm. I can go through uh, the, we we'll call it economic value estimation around the economic uh, outcomes I'm going to create for customers, right? The utility, I'm going to save you this much money. I'm going to save you this much time, this much headcount, uh, et cetera, right? It's this much better than the next best competitive alternative, right? So it's the Delta, right? Here's what they're priced. And I'm at a, a positively or negatively differentiated from you. But then mm-hmm. we get to this concept of perceived value. And it's really perceived value that is most neglected. Perceived value is what actually creates willingness to pay, which is gets us into the from value into the pricing world. Mm-hmm. And and perceived value is where a lot of the emotional aspects come in, right? This is where uh you know the different levels of of risk like uh mentioned before no one ever got fired for buying IBM, right? Mm-hmm. The, the social risk, the the performance risk, right? This is uh, putting my my career on the line. I'm not sure if your product is going to be adopted the way the other customers are mm-hmm, at my company, mm-hmm. right? Are we going to get the same value, right? So there's there's risk discounts that that, that get applied based upon uh, those customers' perceived value. Um, what we think about, there's, there's another lens to sort of think through these uh, softer components as well. And what I would say is for, for the most part, I focus on B2B products. Mm-hmm. For B2B products, the vast majority of the work is, is really on understanding what those functional or, or economic uh, value drivers are and, and really focusing there. Uh, it's As you get into B2C, you know, that's where, you know, if I go by Tide or whatever the, you know, Kroger generic version of Tide is, right? Uh, there's, there's, I'm going to pay a I'm going to pay a premium for Tide because mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. because of because of brand, right? Yeah. And so there are ways for you know, there's more advanced uh, market research instruments you could use to to actually measure <clears throat> how much people value things like brand, right? As, mm-hmm. as a soft sort mm-hmm. of intangible uh, asset, right? And we could think about brand as satisfying um, uh, a sense of trust, right? Like right. I go to McDonald's, I know what I'm going to get when I go to McDonald's, right? Re- reputational risk goes down potentially from a brand. Yeah. Or- yeah. But those things tend to be less important in B2B. So I don't deal with them nearly as mm-hmm. much. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I could kind of take that in a bunch of different directions. I'll stop there and see where you I, want to go. I would think that in, in my perception of, of B2B, the big risk is, will it actually work? Right? Um, and I talk about it. So I have a little model. It's sort of a very simple version of what you've talked about and probably wrong in significant ways. But I call it the value inequality. I essentially, I say that the the value that the customer gets needs to be in their perception it's sort of a perceptional thing much more than the price of the thing plus a bunch of essentially the cost of a bunch of risks like that it won't work 
that I won't be able to use it, even if it would work, that I can't do the change management or that I should have spent the money somewhere else. So opportunity cost risk, um, which I, I mean, to me, that sounds ultra simplified versus what you just said, but it's, it's similar. It's sort of directionally in that way, I think. Yeah. I, I love your value inequality. I listened to your, uh, your podcast oh, on, you. on that. And I think we're, I think we're, I think we're highly aligned. I think the only distinction I would make is that uh, some of the, uh, buckets that you have for value inequality or some of the, the categories, uh, I would just split between sort of what I put in exchange value and in perceived value, but ultimately oh, I think good, you end up in the same place. Good point. I, I appreciate that feedback. And it's meant to be a really simple model. You can't necessarily put it into a calculator, but you can use it in your brain to think, oh, in particular that will it actually work risk, right? <laughs> That's the big one, right? Because yeah. so our customers have all bought stuff that was supposed to solve a problem that didn't solve the problem. And, yeah, uh, well, and, and I think you know for the for you, I believe you you know, you said you work a lot in enterprise uh, software, and there is a point as products get too complicated. You know, we become as technologists, and I'm guilty of this as a recovering engineer and product manager myself. Uh, I am incredibly guilty of getting caught in feature land. And look, mm -hmm. we've got this list of 300 features, and isn't this great? Well, put yourself in the shoes of your customer. And, you know, okay, you're on page 20 of how we're better than our next best competitive alternative. And the poor prospect is just overwhelmed, right? And <laughs> yeah, going back to yeah. what you're saying, they're like, look, I just don't want to make a mistake. And so instead we get to this, a shift when, when products get to a certain level of complexity, it can actually be better to shift from describing your differentiation to providing assurances of value. Well, There's reducing that well, anxiety of like overwhelm. Um, it's like, look, the, the the hundredth feature on the list is not what's going to tip this deal into the closed one category. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we need to it, just make the person feel better. And, and that can really change as well as you think about, you know, perceived value is really important on the sales front. If we think about, uh, the you know, in B2B, we often have a buying center. So each mm -hmm. of those, whether it's procurement, the financial buyer, the end user champion, right? The uh, the software lifecycle uh, deployment team, right? If you buy CRM like Salesforce, you have an entire sales operations team that needs to maintain it, right? Each of those people are exactly. going to have a different set of values and is going to want different assurances on different value drivers. And we need to make sure that we're yeah. we're cognizant of where each of those uh, players are, are at when we're making our claims. And that's the end of part one of my interview with Dan Balkowski. I hope you enjoyed it and learned as much as I did. Check out the notes for this show at secretsofpm.com slash 134. You can find links to Dan's contact information there and other information about the show as well. We'll finish up this conversation next week in episode 135. Until then, this is Nils Davis. Bye-bye. <laughs>